So, if you have your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And we're going to read a few verses today and, um, and get into our study. So let me go ahead and read John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 14 today. And this is uh, probably a pretty familiar passage. And this is a, a continuation of Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. So John 14, starting in verse 1, says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a house or place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I, may, that where I am, you may also, or you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, and if you have a pen or pencil or something like that, I would highlight this verse. One of the most critical verses in all of scripture. Verse six says, and Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do not know him and have seen him. I'm sorry, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Verse 8 says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whosoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does, this, does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Verse 12 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatsoever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the ability for us to come and worship you. Um, thank you for the songs that we sang this morning and the ability, again, Lord, just to, to sing songs to you, this amazing creator. To, to take a pause on our busy schedule. Hopefully to remove some of the distractions and just for a few moments ponder and think and meditate on how glorious and amazing and worthy you are. And Lord, I pray now as we look into your word that that we're able to pull something out that is life-changing for us, all of us. Lord, this morning there may be some who have never accepted you as their Lord and Savior. This morning I pray that as, as we study your word, that you turn the light on in their head, that you give them clarity so where they understand that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no way to the Father except through you. And then, Lord, for those of us who, who have come to that point, who have accepted you as our Savior, may we take comfort knowing that you're in heaven now preparing a place for us. May we live a life looking forward to that. God, I pray that as we study these words, I pray that everything that we do, everything that we say, the songs that we will sing, the prayers that we will pray. May they all be centered around you. May we give you all honor and all glory today and forevermore. In your son's beautiful name that we pray, amen. So this morning we continue in this passage of John, this gospel of John. And, and again, I, I hate to keep going backwards, but to put it in the context, Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples. Chapter 13, we see where, where Jesus declares that one of them is going to betray him. He goes and he says that um, Peter, I mean, in front of the whole group, Peter, you'll deny me. And then he goes and says, um, guys, I'm 
fixing to leave. And so we look at this from two different perspectives. One from the, the perspective of, of the disciples who have given up everything. I mean, everything they have, they've given up to follow Jesus for over three years. As we have studied the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, we've, we've talked about how these Pharisees became um, very agitated with Jesus, right? very aggressive. And we've got to remember, too, Jesus had this group of guys, his inner circle, the 12 disciples following him. The same hostility that, that Jesus would bear, obviously the disciples would bear the same. The same fears. And this one that they continue to follow and lean on and love in the midst of this upper room, in the midst of this agony that certainly Jesus is beginning to feel. Remember, we we looked in, in chapter 13 where it said that Jesus was agitated. Jesus knew the end was drawing near. We're only a matter of hours before he is arrested and tried and beaten and nailed to a cross. And these disciples now, they hear this. They hear about somebody betraying them. They, they, hear G, they, they hear Peter being called out in front of the whole group. And then the understanding in 13, John 13, 31, where Jesus says, guys, I'm, I'm fixing to leave. And, and where I'm going, you can't come. Not right now. And so their world is, is turned upside down. So we have the, the perspective of the disciples looking at this, this passage, this, this communication of Jesus to them. But then we also have to think about this through the eyes of Jesus. Because right? Jesus knows what is coming. He knows what's in store. All the physical anguish. He knows all of that that's coming. He knows the timetable. He knows it all. And what amazes me is this, in the midst of this, in the midst of all the trouble that he's about to face, where is his concern? Where is his compassion? It's not on himself, is it? Because in the very beginning of John 14, verse 1, he starts off saying, let not your hearts be troubled. He's talking to the disciples. Those 11 men now. But it's starting to spin. They have no idea what's about to happen. And he turns to the disciples and he says, Guys, listen, don't be troubled. I, I don't know about you, but I could speculate based on my own life. Things happen that we don't understand. Hardships, tragedies. And in the midst of those tragedies, if we're being completely honest, our eyes often look to heaven, but usually they're filled with questions, aren't they? God, why in the world would you let this happen? Where are you? What's going on? I thought you were going to protect me. Those same thoughts that we struggle with, those same attitudes and emotions that we struggle with, the disciples are struggling with. How in the world, what do you mean you're leaving us? Do we, do we give up the last three years for nothing? I mean, do we, do we give up everything? Do we leave our families, our fortunes? Do we leave our occupations, our vocations? Do we leave our homes for, th- for nothing? Jesus says to these disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. See, what's kind of amazing about this passage as we read this is the disciples don't fully comprehend what's going on. We, we have the benefit of reading this. We, we know the end of this glorious story, don't we? We know that, yes, Jesus will be arrested. We know that Jesus will be crucified. But we also know that Jesus will, will rise again and go to heaven. We know those things, don't we? 
But just like in our lives when those tragedies strike, we don't know the outcome of those tragedies, do we? It's kind of like this, if, if we have this picture of, uh, in our minds, if we could think of taking maybe like a shoebox. And let's say we constructed this maze, and at one end we put this glob of peanut butter. And then we put these ants in the other end. And we're looking down, and, and we see these ants, and over time they begin to march their way through the maze, and they get to the peanut butter. Right? They get the peanut butter, and they begin to take it back. Now, from our perspective, looking down, we see the whole picture, don't we? Right? We can see it all. We, we can see the struggles, but we can see how they begin to navigate and they get to the prize and they begin to take the prize back home. We have the ability, the perspective of looking down and seeing this. But those ants don't see that, do they? Those ants, as they're marching, they just see the wall in front of them. And they have to turn and go and turn again and, and, and find the struggle until ultimately they get there. It's a lot like our lives. In the, midst of this, in the midst of this maze of life, we don't understand what's all going on, do we? We're trying to navigate the best we can. But so often it's just another wall. It's another bump. It's another bruise. And Jesus is saying, guys, to the disciples and to us today, don't be afraid. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And he reminds them, guys, believe in me. He goes on there and he says, I'm, I'm going, I'm leaving, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Um, verse 3 says, and if, uh, verse 2 says, in my father's house are many rooms. Some of you, if you have a different translation, say may, may say many mansions, Right? See, Jesus, he's painting this picture. He's trying to comfort these disciples saying, listen, I'm leaving, but it's for your good that I leave. It's not a bad thing. Next chapter, um, we're going to talk, or, or next, next week, we're going to begin to talk about the Holy Spirit coming and the benefits and, and the reason why the Holy Spirit comes. But, but Jesus goes and he begins to show this picture that I believe is so vital for us today because he's trying to draw their attention not to the trouble not to the chaos that they're in right there, but he's trying to draw their attention to heaven. He says, listen, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's a personal place. That Greek word um, can be to abide. See, in our minds, sometimes, I don't know how you picture heaven. Sometimes I think we can transfer some of our um, material wants into what heaven may be like, like this big castle-like structure that we have independently, all our own. I'm not saying heaven will or won't be like that, but the picture that we see in this scripture here is very similar. If you guys recall back to Christmas time, when we went through that, that journey to Bethlehem, Remember we talked about Mary and Joseph? Mary and Joseph, they get engaged, and there's this, during the Bible times, it was called the betrothal period. So they get engaged, and then the groom would go to his family home, and there'd be this time of separation, okay? The, the bride stays with her family, the groom goes off, and he begins to construct a room onto their father's home, onto the home that he grew up in, a little wing for, for he and his wife. So they would go, and they would construct adding onto that home. And once that, that room or that wing was finished, then he would go back and he would get his bride. And they'd have this feast, celebration. And he would take his bride back to the home. And see, that's a picture that Jesus begins to, 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 to give us about heaven. See, it's this big mansion, yes, but he begins to construct all these rooms adding on to this mansion for us. It completely confuses these guys. But he's telling them, listen, guys, I'm going to heaven. And I promise you this, if I go, I'm coming back. You know, recently um, I was trying to do some study for, for um, the message this week. And I was trying to uh, look up some data about 
what Americans feel like regarding heaven. Um, statistics are hard because you just never know exactly where the statistics are coming from. And you look at a Gallup poll and they may say something, but that's based off of 1,000 people, 1,800 people and, and whatever. But in, in my futile attempts to try and find out what Americans believe about a literal heaven, I found one study done um, in 2000, which is several years ago now. And it said that 88% of Americans believed in a literal heaven. Okay, 88%, 2000. Um, some of that I think has changed. Uh, I, I saw a 2004 Gallup poll that said 81% of Americans uh, believe. And then I saw a 2009 Barna research. Barna is a, a, typically they do a lot of work for like Lifeway, religious type research. Barna Group found in 2009 that 76% of Americans live, believe in a literal heaven. Okay, so we look at that 76 up to 88%. That's a high percentage, isn't it? Well, this is what's amazing to me. If you think about this, um, a society that, and this is important, the statistics important, because if we think about this, a society that believes so strongly in heaven, that they believe in a literal heaven, right? you would think that that society then would, um, would not concern itself with trying to maintain its youth. You would think that would be a society where you would begin to see the crime rate diminish and lower. But somehow there's this mix-up in the reality of what we say we believe in the way that we ultimately live. Um, I'm not trying to speak in judgment of any of this, but um, I found that in 2012, in the United States alone, we spent $11 billion on facelifts, Botox, and other aesthetic improvements. I'm not judging. I'm just saying. <laughs> there were 1.6 million cosmetic surgeries and then 13 million minimally invasive procedures like Botox performed. Okay? Currently, I guess 2013, the annual revenue of U.S. weight loss industry exceeds $20 billion. Now, again, I'm not anti-weight loss, okay? Don't, but $20 billion. So we got like $11 billion in cosmetic surgery, $20 billion in weight loss. Um, they say that over 108 million people are on diets. And 85% of those are female. See, there's a disconnect. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try and live healthy lives. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try and lose weight. And I'm not saying that all plastic surgeries are bad and evil. But what I'm saying is we say we believe in a literal heaven. But we have so many people desperately trying to find heaven here on earth. And they're trying to stay as young as they can for as long as they can. They're trying to change everything about them to fit this perfect mold, if you will. And I think that there's a reason why we have this mix-up um, regarding our realities of heaven. And I, I came up with a, a list of a few. We're going to go through some of these and then get back to our deal. I think sometimes one of the reasons that we um, mess up our view of heaven, quite honestly, is I think ministry or churches can do that. I think that we live in a day and age where, um, where, where, where many churches decide to preach and talk about things that they perceive as being relevant. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being relevant. I don't think we should. Um, I think we should be and engage the culture in which we live. But oftentimes, we try and chase the hot topic rather than focus on God's word. Do you guys realize that 
Heaven's mentioned 557 times in the Bible. That's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot of times, isn't it? See, heaven's a foundational and fundamental aspect of Christianity, of our faith. It's one of those things that is eternal. And so I I, I tell you this, that my desire, my hope, my prayer um, as as your pastor is that we um, avoid, not avoid relevancy, not avoid difficult topics, but we always embrace and focus on God's word. There's a, a reason, I've said this before, that we do expository teaching. There's a reason why we've gone through the Gospel of John verse by verse. Okay? The reason for that is this. If it's, in God's, or if it's in the Bible, it's fair game. We need to talk about it. One of the struggles, I'm not saying that those, those pastors who, who are only do like topical teaching, I'm not saying they're evil, I'm not saying they're wrong, I'm not saying any of that. But I'll tell you this from, from, from me. I'm not smart enough or creative enough to come up with catchy titles and sermon ideas. Okay, I, I, I don't know that I could sit down and come up with topic after topic after topic and all these cool, creative sermon deals. Okay? I, my only desire for us is to, to learn God's word, that we look at it in its context. And when things that we cross in God's word are a hot topic of today, we'll tackle that. But I'm not going to just chase, I'm not going to have our church just chase hot topics for the sake of chasing hot topics. Okay, so I, us, I think the church today oftentimes directs our thoughts from heaven onto relevant things in the world. I think another thing that we stressle, uh, wrestle with is um, society. Kind of an obvious one, isn't it? How, think of it in your minds. How many times have we seen a commercial that tells us if we get this, whatever the product is, our life will be perfect? Right? It, it might be... Um, the movie star who um, is endorsing the new um, hair dye color stuff, the L'Oreal, is that right? Is that it? Am I right? Am I right? Maybe I'm off, right? But you guys understand what I'm saying? Like there'll be some, there'll be some actress that like guys, if we are honestly, like you think about this ladies, you all know there's no way in the world that she uses that product at home, Right? <laughs> right? Like, you know that she goes to some fancy hair salon and has three people doing her hair at one time, and it's like a surgical procedure. <laughs> but yet, we watch the commercial and say, well, if we just use this hair product, then it will be perfect forever. Right? It, I mean, it maintains like 3,457 hair washes before it begins to... Right? And so we, we, we go and we get that product only to be disappointed, right? Um, you see those ads where, like, you put this belt on your stomach and it, like, gyrates something or other, and, like, you walk away with, like, a six-pack, <laughs> right? We've seen those things, correct? And so we go and, and we buy that or we buy this, like, space-looking suit that will melt off the pounds, and then we just look weird, we realize like that, that's, that's not what it promises us. See, society's going to keep telling us um, that there are these things that we can get to bring heaven down here to earth, that if we just get this, it will make life perfect. A lot of unbelievers fall for that, but guys, if we're all honest, as believers, we fall for it, don't we? What about the idea of prosperity? Today, we, we, we wrestle and we chase wealth with almost reckless abandon. Think through this scenario with me, if you will. You're fixing to go on a trip. Um, you're in the Tallahassee airport 
getting ready to board a plane. And let's say we're going to fly to Hawaii. That sounds like a luxurious, like heaven on earth location, right? You're getting ready to go on a plane. And this pilot comes out for this, 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 this plane, this airline, and says, listen, uh, if, you, if you come on our, our, our airline, I promise you it will be the absolute best plane ride you have ever experienced. I guarantee you there will be no turbulence at all, none. We have these special um, Beats earplugs you can put on your head, right? And it, it takes away all the noise. We're going to run first-run movies, stuff that's not even hit the theaters yet. Every meal's a seven-course meal. You want a manicure, you want, you want a massage, we got it. It will be perfect. There's only one problem. We've tried this thousands of times, and we cannot land the plane. Like every time we do this, the plane crashes and everyone dies. As he finishes up, you have another pilot from a different airline come up and says, listen, hey guys, um, I can't promise you a perfect ride. Like I've looked at the weather charts and there's going to be turbulence. It's pretty much unavoidable. We're, we're going to hit some hot pockets. And, um, and I'm going to be honest that like some of them are going to be intense to, to where um, you may need to grab that little bag in front of you and dispose of what you're eating now. Like, there might be some rough patches. We have a few snacks and a soda or so, but like the, the meals aren't the greatest. But I guarantee you this. We're going to land the plane safe and sound. Our safety is 100% guaranteed. We've never had a crash. We never will. We will get you to your destination. Now in our minds, which airplane are we going to board? There's a lot of people that struggle with that. Um, if you go in, the, in your Bibles, I, I would encourage you here real quickly. In Psalms chapter uh, 73, Psalms 73, we have um, a psalm here. David's writing it. Very beginning, you see um, in verse 3, it says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Okay, so like, look up here real quick. How many of us as good, like rock-solid, hard, Bible-believing Christians, like how many of us have ever thought, how in the world can that guy be so successful, have so much money, have what looks like everything going for them, and like they are far from Christian-like. Like they do everything bad. Like every despicable thing you can think of, they do. Like how many of us have ever had that thought? wrestled with that i mean david's doing that right here david's like saying he's envious of the arrogant people out there that are that somehow unbeknownst to him they're prospering towards the end of that passage you look at verse 18 it says or 17 it says until i went into the sanctuary of god then I discerned their end. So as David drew close to God, went into the sanctuary. Verse 18 says, Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall in ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. I think we need to be careful in that um, sometimes as Christians, um, we can label those who do prosper as being evil. It's not the, that's not, that's misreading scripture. There's nothing inherently wrong with a nice home, nice car, a big bank account. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, right? The problem becomes when that becomes the God, isn't it? And that can become a God for a person who has all those things or the person that has none of it but is consumed with the desire of gaining it. And what David's reminded of that is, listen, 
he may achieve that. That person who is far from God, that person who is despicable, who is arrogant, who is evil, they may attain those things here on earth. But here on earth is the best their life will ever be. And those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, who have accepted him as our Lord and Savior, need to understand our life here on earth is the worst it will ever be. So our perspective from ministry, our perspective from society, prosperity, we need to concentrate on heaven. One of the beautiful things that we will face one day is we have the ability for those who believe to stand face to face with Jesus Christ. I want to be very clear. We go through tragedy. We hit the speed bumps. There's a lot of whys in life, aren't there? We may never get the answer here on earth. But when we stand before him, we'll have the opportunity in heaven to find out why. Why the iniquities? Why the injustice? This past week, I I had the opportunity to spend some time with a family in the hospital. I shared with you guys last week at the end of the service to pray for this family. You have this young man, 22 years of age, in an accident who at this moment's in a hospital bed some 10, 12, 13 days after the accident in a coma. Doctor comes in and they asked if I could come with them as the doctor came to give them some prognosis and kind of the reality of what's going to happen if they continue down this road. And they're told by this doctor that um, we can do things to keep him alive, but we go down this road. The reality is the best he'll ever have is to live in a 24-hour acute nursing facility where people have to rotate him every hour, that people have to clean him, wipe after him. He'll breathe through tubes and eat the same way. It's a 22-year-old boy who has an 18-month-old son and a baby about four months away. That's a big why, isn't it? That's a big why to stand before God for us down here to think, why in the world would this happen? Why? I'm sure all of us have had family members that have been sick and you pray for the healing or you you pray that God heals the cancer and you pray and you pray and you pray but the healing never comes. Marriages that are broken Maybe one side wants so badly to restore that marriage and will do anything and everything they can to do that, but the other half wants nothing to do with it. A job that you've worked for years and excelled at, and then suddenly a a new boss comes in and you no longer have the desk you had before. Wise. It happens to all of us. What Jesus tells us, what Jesus told the disciples is, listen, guys, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Don't focus here. Focus there. Focus on heaven. We've heard the cliche sometimes about Christians that we're so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. You guys realize that's a scriptural thing. Paul preached about that. Paul tells us to focus on things above, didn't he? 
to focus on things above. I've said and shared with you before, my life verse, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways. But just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so your ways and your thoughts are higher than mine. God's got this amazing plan. We may not understand it. There will be whys. There'll be bumps in the roads. There'll be bruises. There'll be heartache. There'll be trouble. There'll be tragedy. But for those of us who know Jesus, take heart. This is the worst life will ever be. We have eternity with him. He's constructing a room attached to his for you. That's personal. There's not a generic room. This isn't like you go to check into a hotel and they all look the same. He's constructing a room personally for you. Wired for you. Our DNA, our thoughts, our, our, our dreams, our likes are all different, aren't they? It's what makes us all different individuals. Those were wired by who? God. I think sometimes our thoughts about heaven is we're going to get there and it's just going to be one long church service. We're just going to sing. Maybe all the pastors will rotate. Take a nap Sunday afternoon. We're going to float around in a little cloud, maybe eat a grape or two. Like that's our thought about heaven sometimes. But guys, it's going to be so amazing. So dynamic, so fulfilling. And it demands our attention, it demands our focus. The disciples still don't fully gather what's going on. Get back to my place here. You have. Thomas, that questions, God, you know, Jesus, we have no idea where you're going. And then Philip backs it up, and Jesus goes through and says, listen, guys, I, I've been with you for, for three years. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father's in me. They're, they're the same essence. And finally, Jesus says, listen, if, if you don't believe me, then believe the works. Believe what you've seen. And I want to just kind of end this morning as we've talked about pondering heaven and living a life focused on heaven. I want to try and do something very practical for us. Verse 12 um, through 14 believe are very practical verses for us today. Jesus um, says there in verse 12, John 14, verse 12 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whosoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Verse 13 says, Whatsoever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. For those of us um, who believe in Christ and he's our Savior, we get the opportunity of looking forward to heaven. We get to live in that light. We get to live knowing how amazing it's going to be. But do you realize and understand that there's more to the Christian life than just heaven one day? We get benefits here on earth. And one of the greatest, if not the greatest benefit that we have, the ability that we have is to pray to God on high. And Jesus says here, listen, if you pray in my name, whatever it is, I'll give it to you. Now, I want us to be very careful about this passage. Um, there's a very popular theology going around that can be coined as prosperity gospel like you name it you can claim it or you pray for it 
God will give it to you. If you have your Bibles and you have a pen, I want you guys to underline, and he says it twice. Verse 13 says, whatever you ask, and I underline, in my name. In my name. Then verse 14 says, if you ask me anything, in my name. See, that's a critical part of that promise from God, from Jesus. He'll give us what we ask for if it's done in his name. Now, what does that mean? Most of us, I think, are trained that as we end our prayers, we say, in the name of Jesus, amen. Right? Or in Jesus' name, amen. My, my little kids, Reagan, will pray. And she answers, in Jesus' name, amen. Right? We, we say that. For most of us, it becomes this catch phrase ending at the end of a prayer that we just, that's the way, it's like our period. It becomes almost to the point where those truck drivers on their CBs end their conversation with the next guy, 10-4, good buddy. Just what they do. It's just how they end it. But that's not what he's talking about here. See, when, when we claim the name of somebody, we're speaking on behalf of that person. Going almost to the story I was telling you before about this family that's going through this tragic time. This young man's not in a position that he can make decisions for himself, right? And so you have family members now that have to speak on behalf of him. The doctor keeps saying, what would he want? You know him. We don't. And Jesus is saying the same thing. Ask in my name. We're speaking on behalf of him. So we need to speak in accordance to his will. Speak in accordance to his nature. To his goodness, to his mercy. Are the things that we're asking for in accordance to his will? So often we get dejected and bothered. And some of us give up on prayer because we pray and we pray and we pray and we never see an answer to prayer. And we begin to think he's just not listening. He's ignoring me. He doesn't care. No. It's not that he doesn't care. It's just that we're not praying things in accordance to his will. Right? I mean, if, if you think about this, if we pray for the shiny new Cadillac, I don't think Jesus really cares about a shiny new Cadillac. We can just pray for those souls of our neighbors and things that match up with his heartbeat. We want to begin to see answers to prayer like we've never seen before. Then we got to go grow closer to the Son, grow closer to Jesus. How do we grow closer to Jesus? We read his word. We spend time with him. We worship him. We meditate him. We, we, we come together in corporate worship like this. We come together for women's Bible studies, men's Bible studies, small groups. We come together and we know and learn more about him. And as we learn more about him, just like John in the upper room, we begin to recline against him and we can begin to hear his heartbeat. And his will becomes revealed to us. We begin to pray things and see him move because it's in accordance to his name. Verse 6 as I encouraged you to highlight earlier. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
often in our conversations with those who don't believe. We are characterized as being narrow-minded, exclusive. In the margin of your Bible, I would write down Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, tells us, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter in by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This narrow gate. Next to Matthew chapter 7, Verses 13 and 14, I would write in the margin of your Bibles, Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Matthew, or in Acts chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under the heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Bible is very clear. Jesus himself is very clear. So when we say there's only one way, it's not us being exclusive. It's not us being narrow-minded. It was Jesus who said it. And I'm not sure about you, but I'm thankful that God gave us one way. Because could you imagine if he gave us 10 or 15 or 20 different ways? Could you imagine how confusing it would be? God in his divine nature God in his amazing wisdom made it simple for you and for me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for, um, I thank you, God, for your heart and your compassion. That in the midst of all the things that were about to occur to you, events that would create pain, knowing all that was in store, God, you drew your attention to the disciples. And you spoke words to them that evening. You speak those words to us today. Those same words there in John chapter 14. Reminding us not to be troubled, not to be dismayed, not to fear. Calm their hearts and their spirits. Letting them know that you were going to go and you were going to build a home 
for them. You are going to go and build a home for us. And you promised those disciples that evening that if you go, you would come back. That was a promise of two things. One, that you would die, but you would come back to life. But you'd also one day come back and rapture your church, come back and take your church home. God, I know this morning that there are several of us wrestling with the whys of our life. Things that don't make sense. Things that, um, quite frankly, we, we sit almost angered thinking that you've left us, abandoned us. God, I pray that you help us to understand that you love us. You died for us. You're building a mansion for us. And you're coming back for us. And that as troubling as things may be here, as difficult as it may be, like that one plane ride, yes, there's going to be turbulence. But you're coming back. And you're going to take us to heaven that the life we have here on earth is the worst it will ever be the absolute worst it will ever be for us and we have this amazing eternal life ahead in heaven may we begin to gaze once again upon heaven And then, Lord, I pray for those this morning that have never accepted you as their Savior. This morning, God, as we go through our time of invitation, I pray, God, that you begin to convict hearts. The reality is this, Lord, that you'll pursue, but you will not force us to accept you. You've given us the opportunity. You've given us the choice. And that you'll honor that choice that we make. This morning, God, I pray that the choice that will be made is to accept you, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior and to walk with you hand in hand, leaned up against you with our head against your chest, feeling your heartbeat. No longer walking in darkness, but walking in light. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you do your work. you woo and you call and give those who need to make decisions the strength and the courage and the power to make them. In your son's name we pray trusting in him loving in him seeking him in all we do. Amen.